Please pray with me as we open God's word together this morning. Father, we thank you for your light, without which we could see nothing. Thank you for your spirit's light in our hearts, without which we cannot recognize you. And we pray for that light this morning, um, that you would shine it brightly and uh, show up yourself well to us, and we recognize you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I know that quite a few of you here are fans of the TV show The Chosen. Uh, it's airing season three right now. Um, I have seen the first two seasons, but I haven't started season three yet. Uh, and I want to wait for the whole season to come out so I can binge it all at once. Uh, so please, no spoilers. Um, if you haven't heard of it, The Chosen is a new multi-season TV show all about Jesus and his disciples. And it has an emphasis on the disciples themselves, hence the title, The Chosen. Um, in all the other movies about Jesus that you've ever seen, the 12 disciples sort of cluster around him like this anonymous blob of hairy men um, who all seem pretty much the same except for Peter who gets the only speaking part. Um, but in The Chosen, each disciple is an individual. You come to know each one as a real person in the show, and you can absolutely tell them apart. They all have their own quirks and personalities. They have their own backstories. And of course, a lot of that has to be imagined by the writers of the show. But it's done in a way that's kind of cons so consistent with everything we do know um, about those people and their time and their culture um, that it's quite possibly accurate. And so it really brings uh, the world of Jesus alive. Uh, it's a really great show, and I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. Go and watch The Chosen. Um, today, as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of John, uh, we come to the part of the story where Jesus starts to meet and gather his disciples. Um, and like in The Chosen, John, in his Gospel, is very interested in who these men were, how they met Jesus at first, and what it was about Jesus that caused them to start following him. And we meet five of them here at the end of chapter 1. Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel, and one more who remains unnamed. So today I want to look at them in three groups. First, the disciples who followed because of the witness of John the Baptist. Second, the ones who followed because of the witness of their families. And third, the ones who followed Jesus because he called them directly. So um, please turn with me to John chapter 1. It's page 886 of the Church Bibles, and this morning we're starting at verse 35. John chapter 1, and we're starting at verse 35. So the first two disciples come on the testimony of John the Baptist. This begins in, in verse 35 through 39. It says, The next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Uh, by their clock, the tenth hour is about four o'clock in the afternoon by our clock. So it's getting close to evening. And the disciples stayed with Jesus overnight. So there are plenty of interesting details in these verses for us to unpack. Uh, we begin at the beginning in verse 35, back with John the Baptist, back in the wilderness where we were last week, uh, a place called Bethany near the Jordan. 
Um, and so John the Gospeler is describing here a time before John the Baptist was put in prison. That makes his gospel quite different to the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they all really begin the story of Jesus' ministry uh, with the imprisonment of John the Baptist. They put down this historical marker after John was put in prison, and then they go on from there. But John's gospel is beginning earlier in the story, while John the Baptist was still alive and free. And so John's gospel is giving us some extra information about the disciples here. And I think we should chronologically place the events we're reading about in these verses uh, right after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, which came right after his baptism, but before he really begins his ministry in Galilee. He says uh, in John's Gospel, chapter 2, to his mother, my time has not yet come. And one thing he could mean by that is my ministry hasn't really started yet. Um, Back in verse 29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, uh, they're they're out in the desert, Uh, that could have been uh, the very day that Jesus emerged from the wilderness and returned to civilization after his 40 days of fasting. Uh, And we know in that fast he had been commissioned out there in the wilderness prepared by the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. Now he's coming back, and the very first thing he starts to do is to gather disciples. He started gathering them right away. So Andrew and this other disciple, who doesn't have a name, go off after Jesus because of the testimony of John the Baptist. Because John says in their hearing, Behold the Lamb of God, and they believe him right away, and they go off following Jesus instead of following John. So these two disciples... They believe and they take the initiative and they go. Um, And so we find their first interaction with their new master there in verse 38. And it's a little bit strange, isn't it? Uh, So Jesus notices these two guys are following behind him. And he turns around and asks them, what do you guys want? Um, And their answer sounds a bit odd to our ears. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? A little creepy, maybe. Um, They they answer his question with a question, and it sounds like a complete non-answer. But really, it is an answer, isn't it, as Stephanie showed us? Um, Because they address him as rabbi, and that means not only teacher, but to them, it means my teacher and master. Uh, Every rabbi had disciples, and these guys were addressing Jesus as his new disciples, calling him rabbi. And they were asking where he was staying, which implied that they intended to stay with him. So we know from uh, records of the first century that a rabbi and his disciples always lived together, ate together, slept under the same roof, and did everything together. A disciple had to know and to learn how his rabbi behaved and responded in every imaginable situation, and so they were never apart. Um, And so these guys asking, where are you staying, implied, we will join our lives to yours. Jesus' answer, come and see. Uh, implied acceptance of their application to follow him, and that began his ministry, day one. As a historical note, it's interesting, isn't it, that John feels the need here in his text, in verse 38, to translate the word rabbi. He says in his gospel, rabbi, which means teacher. It tells us kind of two things. It's interesting, first, because John used the Hebrew word rabbi with all its Hebrew meaning in its context, suggesting that Hebrew was, in fact, the language these disciples were using with Jesus. And John, as he recorded the conversation, was already translating it into Greek as he wrote. 
But the second thing it tells us is that John expected that his audience would be very unfamiliar with the word rabbi and so need a translation. And that means that not only were most of his readers Greek-speaking Gentiles, but they were Gentiles with a very high level of detachment from Jewish life and culture. The church and the synagogue had become so separated by the time John wrote that he felt the need to translate the word rabbi. And I find that sad. Um, so that was the first two disciples who followed Jesus because of the testimony of John the Baptist. Uh, second, there was one who followed him because of family witness. And this was Simon Peter. And it happened on that same first day. Verse 40 goes on. Uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. John translates again. Um, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Interestingly, that word Cephas is in Aramaic. It's not the Hebrew word for rock. Um, and John's again translating from the Aramaic into Greek. Can't really tell you why Jesus is the Aramaic there. Um, so initially, Simon came to Jesus because of the testimony of his own brother, Andrew. After mere hours with Jesus, Andrew was ready to tell his own brother, we have found the Messiah. Uh, by which, of course, he meant we have found the anointed king of Israel that God had promised would be born from the lineage of David to sit on David's throne forever. The Messiah. The one we've all been waiting for in Greek, the Christ. Andrew says, we have found him. He says it to his brother with great confidence very early on. Now, as the Gospel of John unfolds, we readers still don't have any direct evidence for this claim, do we? We haven't really met Jesus at all yet in the story. He hasn't done anything remarkable, and he's barely said anything at all. So at this stage, we're meeting Jesus, kind of surprisingly, through his friends, sort of reflected through his friends. First through John the Gospeler himself, then through the witness of John the Baptist, who tells us who Jesus is, and now we're meeting him through the witness of Andrew telling his brother about Jesus. But Jesus himself in this gospel remains like a mysterious and shadowy figure to us, the reader. We're being told about him. We're being told that he's the Messiah before we're being shown it. I think this has the effect of building a sense of intrigue and anticipation in John's gospel. And in a sense, we're meeting Jesus here kind of exactly the same way that Simon Peter himself did. We're meeting him through someone else telling us about him first. Um, and we know that when Simon saw for himself that he did believe and follow Jesus along with his brother Andrew. We notice that Jesus renamed him on this meeting, Cephas, Peter the Rock. Um, and that's kind of a pattern in this passage, because as Jesus meets his early disciples in these verses, they do quite a lot of naming and renaming each other. It's, it goes on all the time. So uh, John the Baptist calls Jesus Lamb of God, verse 36. Andrew calls him Rabbi in verse 38, and Messiah in 41. Looking ahead, Nathaniel says in 49, Son of God, King of Israel. They're giving Jesus all these names. And Jesus, for his part, names them back, doesn't he? So Simon is Cephas. And then later, Nathaniel in verse 47 is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So they give each other these names and titles, like really early on, like our, our first meeting. Uh, and there's such a beauty and an intimacy in this recognition, isn't there? Um, it really says the kind of thing Stephanie was saying in the children's sermon about 
finding and knowing right away that you've found what you're looking for. They see each other. They notice one another. And they know each other right away. The disciples seem to know right away that this Jesus they've met is one they belong to. He's the one they've been looking for. Their hearts have been seeking. He's the one who made them, who made their hearts. Um, And then he, in turn, knows them too, recognizes them, knows who they are, knows their real names. It's really beautiful. We know that later on in John's gospel, there's going to be so much love between Jesus and his disciples, but we see it right here in chapter 1. So John the Gospeler wrote in chapter 1, verse 11, back in the prologue we read, that he came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And that is the general pattern that we see worked out throughout his gospel. But right here at the beginning, this is the beautiful opposite, isn't it? This is the break in the pattern. These men were also his own, and these men did receive him. They received him right away with very little convincing. So we saw that two followed Jesus on the strength of John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, One more now has followed him because of the testimony of his brother. Um, And now let's spend uh, more time on these last two, the ones Jesus called. Verse 43 says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. That's all. Follow me. It's just this blunt, direct command. And uh, not only does Philip obey immediately, but he then also goes and finds a friend. So verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And again, this is now the second time already that this has happened, that one disciple has recruited another. All right, right here, so early on. Uh, in, In two cases already in John's gospel, the very first thing that a disciple of Jesus has done is go and make another disciple, spread the word and bring a friend. It's such a core part of what following Jesus means. Meeting Jesus is news that wants to be shared right away. And Philip goes to share it with his friend Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel is nobody's fool, and he's initially a bit skeptical. Verse 46 says, Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Um, So Nathaniel's response is like, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Brian will tell me does that way better than I do. Um, It's probably a kind of running joke at the time, a kind of local saying. It's like saying, Nazareth is a notorious dump. Uh, It's a new town on the map that wasn't mentioned in any of the biblical prophecies. What good could come out of Nazareth? Um, but undeterred, Philip simply, he just, he just says, come and see. Come and you shall see. It's really beautiful words. And again, it's the second time that we've heard these very words in today's passage. Jesus said exactly the same thing in verse 39. They ask him, where are you staying? He says, come and you'll see. Um, and this is just a lovely invitation, isn't it? To come and see for yourself. Don't take someone else's word for it. Don't trust your life to a blind leap of faith. Come and see. Come and look. Come and decide for yourself. And so Nathaniel does. Uh, And let's read again what happens. It's the longest interaction Jesus has with any of them. And it begins in verse 47. It says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, 
Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Nathaniel was initially a bit skeptical, but his skepticism melts away like a snowman in summer, doesn't it? Very quickly after he meets the real Jesus. Um, Jesus identifies Nathaniel from a distance as a true Israelite, and he tells him that he saw him under the fig tree. It's a bit mysterious. Um, but if you've seen the show The Chosen and you've seen the way it does this scene, then I expect they got it pretty much bang on here. Uh, I expect that Nathaniel's time under the fig tree was completely private, right? Something that no one could have seen. I expect that he was there for the purpose of being alone, for the purpose of unburdening his soul to God and dealing with some great pain or tragedy. And so Jesus, telling him that he saw him there, was extremely meaningful because the only other person there with Nathaniel under the fig tree was God. Uh, Nathaniel might have felt very alone and unanswered in his prayers, but here is the answer. Here is the response. Here is proof that he's not, in fact, alone. And on this fairly small and simple piece of evidence, Nathaniel casts away all his doubts and says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Uh, a declaration that combines all the things that the others have already been saying. And I really think we should recognize in Nathaniel's quick conversion in these verses the evidence of what Jesus said about him in verse 47. Jesus said, here's a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Because surely the lack of deceit or guile or crooked ways in Nathaniel's heart is precisely what enabled him to change his mind so quickly here, to believe the truth of Jesus the moment he saw him. And surely Jesus is also implying by the statement that all true Israelites will similarly recognize him with no trouble at all. His identity is apparent to the pure of heart. Um, but also, therefore, by implication, the reverse is true, that the reason that so many others, like the Pharisees, are going to have trouble changing their minds in the face of all the evidence and believing the truth about Jesus is really their own crooked hearts, deceitful hearts, their guile. Um, and, and Jesus would say they are not true Israelites. And so they will remain blind and not see what Nathaniel is going to see, which includes the far greater things than these, like heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Any Jewish listener to Jesus saying that would immediately recognize that as a reference to Genesis chapter 28, where Jacob had a dream about heaven. We call it Jacob's ladder. Um, in the dream, Jacob saw angels ascending and descending on a stairway to heaven. And Jacob woke up and he declared, this is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And he named the place Bethel, house of God. So by the reference, Jesus is saying that he is the true Jacob. The true Israel, therefore. Jacob was renamed Israel. Um, and that he himself is now the very gate of heaven, the living house of God. And so what we find at the end of chapter John is, uh, sorry, John chapter 1, 
is a true Israelite uh, meeting face-to-face the true Israel. And there's this immediate recognition of each other um, and love for one another. So it's a very beautiful scene, the end of this chapter. Um, Okay, so I want to bring all this home for us today. We learn a lot in this passage about belief and how believers are made. And the bottom line is believers are made when they come and see, right? When they come and see. No one is expected just to believe in Jesus from afar with no evidence. We have to meet him for ourselves. We have to come and see for ourselves. And maybe uh, some of you are here this very morning doing just that. You're coming to see for yourself. Thank you. You are so welcome here. You're so welcome to do that. Please bring us your doubts. Like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Um, Come and see. Is God with us this morning? Is he living and active in his word? Is he enlivening the praises of his people? Is he answering their prayers? Can you see it? And will you join us who believe it? I wonder if you're having trouble seeing it, then Jesus might have a challenge for you in today's reading. If you're having trouble seeing the living God in our midst, could it be that you are blinded by some kind of deceit or guile or crookedness of heart? Could it be that you hold on to disbelief merely because you prefer it that way? And I wonder if it might look like this, that you call yourself a skeptic, and that's a label that you wear with pride. You like being a skeptic. You enjoy doubting the things that others believe, questioning everything, trusting no one. And pretty much the worst thing you can imagine would be to be taken in, to be somebody's fool. Uh, Sarah and I, you can probably tell we watch a lot of Netflix. Um, I just finished uh, watching the Netflix miniseries on Bernie Bernie Madoff, the monster of Wall Street. Uh, He ran a a $60 billion Ponzi scheme that fooled millions of people, including the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, And we all know that fraudsters are out there, aren't they? We know it so well. We are daily pestered by scammers who can't be trusted. Um, And a lot of us who've grown up with stories like the Madoff scandal of other people trusting people and getting burned, we've grown up pretty cynical as a result. We're determined to trust no one. But is that really a good way to live? We see today that the disciples who first met Jesus were so very unlike that. They were so uncynical. They were hopeful. They believed that good would come to them. And they quickly recognized it when they did. And when they saw it, they banked everything on Jesus very quickly after like a day of knowing him. Um, Nathaniel is the most skeptical person of the whole bunch here. But that only lasted about five minutes. He allowed his skepticism to evaporate like the morning dew when the sun rose, when he came face to face with the evidence. So I ask you pointedly, is that something you would have allowed yourself to do? There's nothing wrong with questioning or testing the facts of the case. We welcome that. We warmly encourage that. We do not have an unthinking faith. But your questions do have answers. All of them have answers. And your doubts all have counter evidence. All of them. And when we show that to you, are you going to believe us and accept that? Will you change your mind? Will you let down your defenses and let go of your skepticism? Or has your skepticism become cynicism, a thing in itself, a refusal to believe, a part of your identity that has you chained up? I urge you to keep the questions 
but ditch the deceit. Now, to those who have believed, we remember today that other believers are made when they are invited to come and see. First Simon, then Nathaniel were invited by a friend, and we identified that as one of the key marks of a disciple of Jesus, the desire to immediately share the good news and make other disciples. So are you who believe inviting your own family and friends to come and see? Or is that something you tried for a while and then gave up long ago? We're all aware that very often people won't come when we invite them, and that can be very disheartening. But I want to encourage you to please not give up. Don't be annoying about it. Uh, Don't be overly relentless, but don't give up either. It's not reasonable for our friends and family to continue to reject Jesus when they've never really met him or known him or understood what he's really like. It's not reasonable. They're rejecting a straw man, a figment of their imagination, and we should really keep trying to show them the real man, pleading with them to come and see. We believe that when people know Jesus like we do, they will love him like we do. I have one practical tip on this when it comes to your own family. I know that family can be the hardest people to share Jesus with. We see today that Andrew managed it, praise the Lord. Um, And you might have hit an impasse uh, where there was uh, uh, the only way to keep peace in your home uh, is basically to shut up about Jesus and stop inviting them to church. Uh, And if that's the case, then maybe you do need to honor their wishes at least most of the time. But I do strongly encourage this, that you keep living out your own faith and discipleship even when they disapprove. In particular, that you keep going to church when you visit them. When you visit unbelieving family or when they visit you for a weekend, go to church. Make sure you don't miss a Sunday because you have unbelieving family with you. If you're out of town, find a church in the place where they live and go there. You can show them a good church in their own neighborhood. If they complain, you go anyway because it tells them, this is who I am. This is what I do. I worship and serve Jesus. I belong with his people. My allegiance to him is stronger than to anyone else in the world. So it tells them the truth. And so in this way, by your actions, you'll be speaking an important truth to the people you love. And I do think it's one that could end up softening their hearts to finally come and see for themselves. We have uh, Neil Labar in our church today, and he had the privilege of baptizing his own father. How old was he? 84 after goodness knows how many decades of seeking him and, uh, and praying for him. So it can happen, friends. Don't give up. Um, so far in the Gospel of John, we've had the witness of several other people. Uh, next week is the week we meet Jesus for ourselves. We get to see him in action. So if you remain interested but unconvinced, please come back again next week and see for yourself. Amen.